Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Paul Courtney, the Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. Paul, it's so great to talk to you again. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks, Jason. Thanks for the invite again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. When we do this, there's so much to catch up on around DHS and, and procurement. You guys have a huge procurement budget. You have so many different programs going on, and it cuts across not just the headquarters where you're at, but of course, cuts across all the components of, of DHS, and, and you're working with them to kind of get a lot of those acquisitions out the door. So let's just start at the beginning. What are some of your priorities? What are you trying to get done over the next year? FY22, as a department, we obligated almost almost $24 billion, uh, about 60,000 transactions. So Tremendous amount of work from the staff. Our, our, our obligations continue to go up year to year. But on top of that, we still knock things out of the park. Our small business goals did an awesome job there. Spend under management, you know, using the best in class vehicles, hit, hit the OMB goals there. Again, the team continues across the department. 1,450 strong procurement workforce continues just to do a tremendous job. So in regards to our priorities for 23, around workforce, process innovation, and just the workplace, I, I, talk, I want to say, I guess, begin with innovation. It's one of the four tenets of our strategic priorities on the procurement side. Working very closely with the secretary to innovate the future of work here at DHS, we're thinking outside the box on how to adapt the work, the workforce, and the workplace requirements across the department to meet our immediate, emerging, and, and future needs. So on the workforce, we are ensuring we have just the right balance of skills and talent. A robust training and development programs ensure staff have the necessary knowledge and experience to keep pace with new technologies and techniques and that they understand and can apply that to existing or new acquisition of procurement processes. The work, we're looking at the opportunities to streamline and make the work more efficient. You know, a great example is we've all talked about robotic process automation, or RPA. We're emerging that that is a way to automate routine administrative procurement support functions that really do allow our, our staff to spend more time on tasks that require a greater, a greater level of strategic thinking and decision making. So that's a, one example of the work. And then the workplace. We're looking closely at the context and, and the physical environment in which work is done, really focusing on collaboration, culture, and workforce preferences. And we've come a long way since March 2020, the beginning of the pandemic. The initial impact and continued impact of COVID has really helped us learn that we can continue to work without missing a beat. We don't need to be tied to a physical space to get our work done. Knowing that there is a large part of the DHS general workforce that does have to come into the office, whether it's the airports, the borders, you know, the, et cetera, totally get that. But there are functions within DHS that could be done, be done virtually again, as we learned over the last couple of years. So organization and to some degree all of DHS really have learned to rethink the way we're talking. We're taking greater advantage of workplace flexibilities than we ever have before. Matter of fact, I had a conversation with one of our components yesterday, and they were, they were actually advertising one of their leadership positions to be fully remote anywhere in the continental U.S. Again, that's three, four years ago. This particular component and a few others would never think about that way, but they have now learned to work in this, this environment. So instead of only focusing on return to the workplace and reentry, we're looking at the how, how we collaborate, how we recruit, how we retain people. Really what the workplace of the future looks like, the department's working on it, we're working on it you know, in, in unison with them, and really how we engage with our customers and, and industry is also a key part of it. So again, COVID has helped us realize just how prepared a lot of our technology solutions already were. Um, again, it's come a long way. We developed and implemented an electronic contract filing system before the pandemic, and we quickly realized how critical it is 
for the continuity of our, our operations. Again, we're, we're, we're honing it, making it better, but we had that in place before the pandemic. So we were already there in a lot of areas, but the pandemic made us realize, you know, continue to do those great things, but also focus on things to make, make life better. So we'll, we'll continue to remain flexible to our workforce, continue to support the critical mission of DHS. And matter of fact, this flexibility is helping us recruit and retain staff as well and not, not lose them to other agencies. So we need, to, we need to keep ahead of the curve. Just on the process improvements, you know, over the last year or so, we've looked internally about, do we have unnecessary steps in our policy process that we can eliminate? We looked at if it takes 12 stops for a document to get approved, probably halfway along that way, Jason, it's lost any sort of people are probably just checking that box. So we're looking for those areas where, where are we adding value and where are we just providing unnecessary steps and just continuing to streamline that to get our staff to really focus on the on the important the important job of procurement within the department. All right, Paul, there's a ton to jump in there, and, and I definitely want to get into the robotics process automation and, and AI and stuff like that. But I want to go back to the thing you just said, which is this idea of streamlining the process itself. If we have 12 stops per document, how do we get down to six? How do we get down to four? Maybe through technology, we can get down to two, right? Your desk and the, the contract officer's desk or something. What have you found as you've done this research? How are you going about reducing, streamlining, and improving? I'll talk about one of the processes, and that is the, the, the acquisition strategy acquisition plan. So what we've, several years ago, the former chief procurement officer of DHS, Soraya Correa, put together a procurement strategy roadmap in place. The idea behind that, that PSR, as we call it, is, hey, before a formal acquisition plan goes through all these stops and makes it to, makes it to the chief procurement officer or senior procurement executive, let's have a conversation because I hate to wait a few months to get to that end, all, get all the approval steps and not have that discussion on the strategy. If we disagree with the way it's going, we want to have that conversation. Initially, it was a very informal process, but over time, we've realized that the components, because again, you're talking to headquarters, let's make sure we put some steps in place. So the informal procurement strategy roadmap became a very formal procurement strategy roadmap, almost as detailed as the acquisition plan. So in in conversations with the heads of contracting, the 10 HCAs throughout the department, we took a step back and said, is there a better way to do this? So we've now made the current strategy roadmap a voluntary conversation. If you want to have that conversation before the AP gets to us, let's have it. We're not going to force it on you, but we'll have that conversation. And on top of that, with the acquisition plan itself is, so we have stops by policy has to go to what components have created their own stops internally. So all those things mixed together, it, it took months to get an acquisition plan approved. And definitely, you know, definitely was taking too long. So not only did we look at some of those steps, again, making the procurement strategy roadmap a um, a volunteer thing, not a forced thing. On top of that, the components have taken upon themselves to look at their own processes for acquisition plans and, and have taken out their own steps. Again, if it's, I just threw out 12, but if it takes that long to get through somebody, I can tell you when I re- was reviewing acquisition plans, being like the, you know, a few months into the process, it was, I was hard-pressed, and I continue to be hard-pressed to say, okay, now I'm going to go back to make them redo their strategy. So, again, we, we're looking to empower our workforce and just to make sure that it doesn't take that long to, to reach the, the signatory folks on, say, an acquisition plan. Interesting that you decided to almost become less prescriptive. Maybe that's not the perfect word, but to say we think these roadmap, these plans are really important, but we realize they also can extend the life. So if you feel good about where you're going, if you feel like, hey, we're, we bought pencils 100 times, we don't need an acquisition roadmap to buy pencils again, that's one thing. If you're buying technology to, to you know, next generation technology to secure the border, hey, maybe that needs a roadmap. I mean, that, is that really what you're saying when you're trying to empower the workforce? 
to really make those decisions of when you need that maybe extra help and maybe when you don't? That's exactly it, Jason. We, again, one of our tenets is, you know, empower and, and, and have a workforce be be ready to to lead as they've always done and to give them the ability to do so. There, there are complicated things, procurements that the department does. We meet with the heads of contracting monthly. So we'll have the we'll take that time to have those conversations and and just help help that our collective wisdom of all, all of the procurement expertise in the department. We we want to make sure we continue to empower the workforce to make those decisions. And we're here that we're here to help them. When you talk about empowering the workforce, you got to jump into this idea. You mentioned uh, robotics process automation. Uh, I'll throw in there artificial intelligence or, or at least predictive intelligence. Let's talk a little bit about how you're starting to apply some of those technologies to improve those processes to empower the workforce. Yeah. No, I, I, I'll, I'll give a couple of great examples that we've over the last year or so we've incorporated. For years, we've all heard about how RPA, AI is going to change the way not just you know, the public sector, private sector, the way folks do business. So we've taken that to heart and really looked at, you know, how can we empower our workforce, take out some of those mundane tasks that they do that really just, it takes a lot of time, but not a lot of brain power to get done. So how can we incorporate, whether it's RPA or AI to help our staff there? So I'll give a couple of examples where we've we've actually have done that in the department. Um, we had a team at U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, been very successful implementing and use of an RPA to create, it's called D the bot. You know, it saved millions of dollars in the last couple of fiscal years. Um, I love these cute names Jason come up with. This is D the bot. So, you know, as you know, RPA uses computer programs called bots to automate rules-based tasks and activities less than administrative burden on employees. CBP first incorporated this, this RPA into its D obligation process in FY21. However, at FY22, D was made available to all the CBP procurement and has performed over 200 plus actions and deobligated over $30 million and really reduced the time manually spent working this process by, by almost 70%. So it used to take, you know, an hour for a staff member to do a deobligation on average. Now it's just minutes to have that done. And in the significant savings has earned this team several awards, including the 2022 American Council for Technology and Industry Advisory Council, Act I Act award. So really, really successful. We're going to roll that out across the department. Again, it's just a way to take some of those tasks that again doesn't take a lot of a lot of brain power, but it takes a lot of time. And we know this team won't stop there. They're already looking to expand RPA to additional processes, such as the uploading of files into our electro- electronic contract filing system, among other areas. There's another pilot taking place right now. This one's not a, a new new uh, RPA. It's called Dora. Again, Jason mentioned the cute names. Um, this is the Department of Army's contract responsibility determination bot. So in this case, requesters send an email to DOOR with one or more vendor unique entity identifiers, basically the, the old DUNS number, to find any company to do business in a particular area. DOOR then uses this UEI to pull necessary information from sources such as SAM.gov, other public open source databases. Then DOOR emails information back to the requester. So DHS, we partner with, with the Army to conduct an initial six-month pilot of DORA with their Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office. And again, it's been it's been phenomenal so far. They've done just tremendous work with it. The feedback received so far has been highly favorable. So again, DORA is easy to use and it's saving a significant time for a workforce. We're evaluating how we can expand the use of DORA department-wide. And this is the case where it's, it's not making any determinations for us. It's just providing the data quickly back to our, our workforce. Um, we've also heard from other federal acquisition workforce that they love the use of AI to perform market research. 
So we listened. So we recently awarded contracts to three small vendors to support agencies who are willing to leverage and implement this solution to support and enhance market research. So quickly how it works, the AI for Market Research solution was brought to bear through our collaborative partnership with several other federal agencies, such as the Office of Federal Procurement Policy and uh, ODNI. So this is the commercial vendors built this software. Again, I mentioned SAM.gov, FPDS, other public facing, public open source information. And it gives quick users a quick view of the marketplace. You know, whether it's cybersecurity, drones, office supplies, just a few keywords, agencies can see a list of vendors who have previously been awarded contracts with the federal government for similar requirements. Then this data is presented back in a visually clear format so users can quickly see trends in business type, dollar amount, and, and other agencies the companies have done business with. It's also dynamic so that users can interact with it, drilling down to see original source data or find out more about a potential, uh, potential vendor. Again, our hope is a solution will allow the, the workforce to save time, focus on higher value work, as well as increase the quality of their market research. Again, this won't be just used by the procurement workforce, will be used by the entire acquisition workforce. Our next step is to pilot these solutions now through June, June of this year, just to measure the time savings and quality of the actual market research. So that's just, just some examples that we've used. Again, we'll continue to look at any RPAs, AI, and we're we're not we're not ashamed to steal the the bots from other agencies like Dora. If somebody's used it and it's working, love to love to share that with their own acquisition workforce. I've heard about Dora before. I know is the Army's had a lot of success with it. It's great to hear that obviously they're sharing it, and then you all are not only being have access to it, but actually are using it. Paul, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Paul Courtney, the Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Paul Courtney, the Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. On the market research, one thing that maybe could Someone could say, hey, Paul, there's a little concerning because it's, it's bringing up vendors who have done business before with the government. So assuming it's a prime contractor and with the focus on small businesses and the focus on getting new entrants into the industrial base, does the market research tool also say, hey, you know, if you bought this, you may also like this, that, that type of suggestion of, of, of companies that maybe are new to the market, maybe have just – put their information into SAM.gov, that, but, but, but have not been awarded a contract before? How do you deal with that challenge of bringing in new or at least accessing new people to the market? Two parts to it. One is, yeah, so it does look at open source information, whether it's SAM, FPS, other databases, but it does have the ability to just look at the, you know, the internet, which has a ton, a ton of information and pull back the information. So it is more than just folks that have done business with the government before. It does allow allow you to reach other companies who may or may not have done business with the federal government. The second part, you know, you hit on this. I'm glad you did. The new entrance side of the thing. So the administration has a big push about getting new companies, small and large, to do business with the government who typically haven't done business with the government before. So OMB is going to put out metrics and we're, we're working internally to figure out how we help drive new businesses who are doing, the, doing business with the federal government, specifically with DHS. I'll give you an example. Our office of small and disadvantaged business utilization led by Darlene Bolock, who's the executive director over that office. She's doing matchmaking right now, which she's taking large businesses who have done business with the federal government before small businesses or those that are classified as small businesses who may not have done business with us before, but doing matchmaking where those large and smalls get together and look for ways 
you know, I always say that probably the, one of the better ways for somebody to get into doing federal government business is to be a subcontractor maybe at first if you've never done it before. As you can imagine, there's a lot of knowledge to do work with the government, trying to make that better and streamline things. But it is always good to kind of get into the government that way, get into the government contracting that way. So we've done a few of these matchmaking. Darling's office will continue to do them. And the proof will be, you know, a year down the road, we have you know some new vendors come in and, and they tell us, yeah, the only reason I got, you know, was able to do this is working with the, the matchmaking and really having that made with a, you know, company A who's done a lot of federal government has helped us walk, walk, walk through that. And now, lo and behold, we have our first new contract with the federal government. So, so again, big push by the administration, and we are going to going to do our part to bring in as much as many new entrants or non traditional uh, federal government vendors as we can going forward. I'm going to throw a number question at you. Do you know roughly during those matchmaking sessions what percentage, how many small businesses have participated, or at least how many maybe haven't done business before, have done maybe a little bit of business with the government before? And any data you can share? And Jason, I don't have the data in front of me, but I can definitely share the information. Darlene's team keeps track of all that. How many how many matchmaking sessions? And I will tell you that the beauty about this is it's not just you know company A matched blindly with with a with a, a small business. They make sure they they have shared interest and in what they're looking for and what they can provide. So in the past, um, we've just companies have come together for vendor outreach sessions who may not have anything in common. Like somebody selling mattresses or meeting with a professional services firm, it didn't make any sense. So Darlene's effort, Darlene's team has really nailed down and, and drilled down and making sure that the matchmaking does come through. We've had we, again, we've had success so far. We've had we do surveys after these events. Everybody has been, you know, a majority of folks have been satisfied or highly satisfied with them. So we're hoping to get the we're hoping to get the full um, impact of that in, in in the next few months or years to come. But as far as numbers go, again, it's been there have been a lot of new entrants. I just don't have it off the top of my head. And I appreciate that. I figured it was maybe sometimes numbers are, are <laughs> they fluctuate and they're not necessarily hard to come by. But you gotta have them in front of you. Where can folks find out about this? Is it through the SAM.gov industry notices, or do you have a website? Is there any place you'd point them toward? Yeah, the best way would be SAM.gov. We we do publish when these events are coming up and have registration. It's a whole process, but definitely it's well well laid out. And SAM.gov is, I think one's coming up soon, actually. But SAM.gov is the place to go for most of the things the department does, especially things that involve industry. We use SAM.gov exclusively. I'm going to shift over because we can talk more about technology and RPA and the like, but there's also the workforce piece because a big piece of using RPA or using AI or predictive analytics is to really to improve the workforce in terms of what they're doing, how they're spending their time, the whole idea of moving from low value to high value work. So let's discuss a little bit of your workforce development programs. How are you using different approaches to address this never-ending challenge of hiring acquisition workers and, of course, retaining your current ones? We're really proud of our um, short word intern program, but we call it our acquisition professional career program. I think it's the leading leading the the federal government on the acquisition side, bringing that bringing that new workforce in. So we use it as a cross component collaboration. We 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 recruit, train, and retain early talent um, using this program. It's a three year nationwide program. Again, and not, yeah, I would tell you it used to not be nationwide, but the pandemic is now a nationwide program. It offers participants a significant level of responsibility early in their careers, provides mentorship, and includes over 500 hours of technical and leadership training. And I talk a little bit about the entry into this. Again, this is where I think we're leading the way. We have three entry pathways to it. One is our Pathways Program for recent university graduates 
individuals with disabilities, disabled veterans, and veteran spouses. So that's one way. The other one is a student higher internship program, SHIP, S-H-I-P, for current university students. Again, we just started this new program, which is where we're going into colleges and universities, whether HBCUs or other, other colleges and universities. And we're recruiting directly from college students before they graduate. Get them, because I, I don't know about you, Jason, when I went to school, there wasn't a procurement program. I didn't know what procurement was. I didn't know what acquisition was. So we're going in there and really trying to recruit um, recruit those individuals who may have um, interest in the procurement acquisition workforce, explain them what it is, recruit them in. And if they graduate from the university and they're successful in the, the, the program, they become part of our, our formal acquisition uh, intern program. The other one is, again, I'm really proud of this one. We call it Warriors of DHS Pathway. This is for veterans transitioning to civil service from military service. Do it in partnership with the Department of Veterans Affairs Acquisition Academy and their Warrior to Workforce program. What we do is we bring the, the veterans in. They, um, they finish up or continue their degree with Mount St. Mary's in Frederick, Maryland. When they get their degree, they formally, again, become part of our intern program. Again, all, all these are great ways for us to get the, the new talent within DHS that work in close coordination with the existing talent and the great workforce we already have. So through this program, it's been in place since 2008. Nearly 400 participants have graduated and placed in DHS acquisition positions. So part of the 450 I mentioned, you know, about a third of those, as we were, a third or so of those are new. Again, we have the entry level to folks that have been with the department 40 plus year, just a robust, talented um, pool of individuals. With that, you know, mentorship and leadership development are also critical elements of professional development. So once they get in, we want to make sure they continue to have that learning opportunities. So we have our own education, development, growth, and excellence uh, mentorship program. We call it the EDGE. And we also have an executive development program within the, within the uh, acquisition workforce. The EDGE, it fosters a network of trusted relationships that encourage personal growth and career development across career fields, grade levels, and geographic location. The core message of this program is that everyone's career could use an edge up. So I get it, edge, name of the program. So again, everyone's career could use an edge up. We've had about 115 participants in this program over the past, past few years. Get another successful program. We also have, the, I mentioned the executive development program at EDP. This is a 10 month experience for up and coming acquisition leaders. Dynamic program, participants hone their leadership qualities by completing a curriculum led by nationally recognized institutions. EDP works, for instance, four participants in our FY20 cohort alone have been promoted to higher levels of leadership because of what they learned and accomplished in that program. So these efforts are kind of, you know, they all have one thing in common, people. It's the number one priority of, of, um, of us. We want to make sure that, you know, people know that we're here for them. We, we want to grow them, empower them, and make sure we have the resources and tools they need to, to have a successful um, career with DHS. I appreciate you explaining kind of each of those trainings training opportunities and pathways. Generally speaking, I think you mentioned something like at the beginning of our conversation, DHS has about 1,450 acquisition workers. Is that a good number? Is there's never enough? Where are you at with that kind of idea that we need more people? And which, generally speaking, your ability to retain them? Because that's probably the hardest thing. You find someone, you train them, they're really good. And then all of a sudden, Commerce Department comes in and hires them, or Treasury comes in and hires them, or they go to industry. That that, that circle is always tough on all agencies. So uh, just to clarify, the 1,450 approximately of the procurement workforce, the department has about 14, a little over 14,000 acquisition workforce. 
And the, the accident workforce has grown over the over the past few years, about 30%. So we can we see that continue to grow. Jason, that's a softball question. We could always use more procurement professionals across the department, and we're continuing to do what we can to support the growing budgets as we continue to obligate more to make sure we have staff that are there to help support those um, mission-critical functions. As far as retention, um, I will I will let you know when the when the when the pandemic so before the pandemic we we did I think probably overall pretty similar to other agencies did a relatively good job with retention but we always had that that revolving door of folks and you know we have folks that leave one component go to another that's fantastic we actually encourage that cross you know cross component collaboration it's good for them to get varying levels of experience so if you want to move to you know from one component to another great if you want to stay in one component your whole career. It's great too. We, we want to just make sure we provide those opportunities for people. During the pandemic, I will. Some of our components were having an issue with retention, and as I mentioned, you know, some some agencies were leaning forward a little bit and allowed their folks to work remotely at different locations. We looked at, you know, within headquarters, our components have all all continued to figure out what is that right mix of, you know, whether it's come to the office, telework, or remote. Great conversations with the component procurement procurement heads of contracting. Um, I think we have a great balance now. I mentioned the one component who's just advertised for a leadership position outside the area. I think, you know, we have turned that corner and I, I think I've seen our retention rates go back up to where they were pre-pandemic, maybe even a little bit better than that because we have been, we have shown great flexibility within the department and just doing the right thing and making sure we have, again, the right combination of staff and their work locations. Paul, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Paul Courtney, the Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Paul Courtney, the Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. Paul, there's a ton more we could talk about with the workforce and all the things you're doing with it, some of these programs. But we got to move to the bigger topics, right? The, there's nothing bigger than the workforce, but every contractor, everyone who's going to listen to this interview is going to say, yeah, but Jason, you didn't ask them about First Source 3. <laughs> what is going on with First Source 3? I will take a half a step back and say we've watched the delays. We've watched the changes in the due dates. We've watched things get pushed back. It's not from protests, which is always a good thing as far as I can tell, Paul. I'd like to blame our friends at GSA and the UEI problems. It seems to be that's not the issue either, what, what I'm told. So what is going on with First Source 3? What's the latest you can tell us? Because I think folks are ready for you all to, to get the awards out the door. It is an active procurement. It's only so much I can share. We had a unbelievably positive response initially. We had over 600 companies express an interest in, in First Source 3, which is great. More competition, more competition, the better. So um, we did receive over 600 proposals for phase one, as I mentioned. So with that volume, conducting meaningful evaluation proposals, it did take did take a considerable amount of time. We did have some protests, just to let you know, um, they have been they have been resolved. That did slow things down a little bit. And again, we um, due process is very important. So if a vendor feels like they need to to raise their hand and, and file a protest, understand just the, it's just doing business and we make sure we resolve those in the appropriate way. So I really want to thank our vendor community for their input through first source select first source three procurement process. We've received valuable feedback and we're gathering lessons learned. I would say one of the feedbacks we got first source three is from first source two to, to the new procurement is way too much administrative burden on the the contract administration side of things. We've taken that to heart and we've made these revisions with first source three to help reduce that administrative burden once the award takes back. So again, 
continue the feedback for source three, all other procurements as well. But for first source three, we have taken a lot of that feedback to, to heart and made changes. So continuing through the evaluation process, I mentioned SAM.gov. Continue to just look at SAM.gov for current timelines and updates. What we can share during selection will be limited, of course, but we'll continue to post frequent updates about the status of first source three. If it feels like there's a void in time, industry is very quick to reach out. We have a DHS industry that lays on mailbox, reach out to the contract and officer, but we'll continue to keep folks um, as posted as, as much as we possibly can as throughout this process. Our whole team's ready to award this and move forward. It just, it just want to make sure we do it right and um, make sure we have a great pool of vendors at the end of the day supporting our first, first source three contract. Taking a step back, whether it's first source three or whatever contract you're working on, and, and I know there's a few others that we'll talk about, when you get so much interest in a big contract like this and you get 600 or more than 600 potential proposals, do you all have a thought or, or has there been a discussion to say, you know, really the competition happens at the task order level. It doesn't really happen at this top master contract level. So why not just say, what's the lowest ceiling we can let people in or what's the lowest floor we can let people in? You know, if if, if 550 or 599 of the contractors are minimally qualified, let's just let them all on versus going through this process and worrying about protests. Because, Paul, you, you and I know you've, we've been around long enough that if you make an award to 300 or 400, you're going to get 30, 40, 50 protests of, of, agent, of companies who didn't get on because they feel like I'm going to get shut out of this market. Has there been discussions? And again, you don't have to talk specifically on First Source 3, but has, have you had discussions internally about how can we make it so we, we focus the competition really at the task order level where price really was what matters the most, where experience really matters the most versus the master or the, the, the big contract level? There's different across the, the federal government spectrum. There's different different thoughts on this. Uh, I've seen vehicles where it's onboarding process is pretty easy. That basically, you know, majority of the vendors who want to do whatever contract it is, they go through a, a, a pretty quick process. They're added to the vendor or added to the to the um, whether it's a BPA or IDIQ. They're added to it, and then you know, great robust competition continues. On the other end of the spectrum, it is. Hey, if we're requiring companies to spend bid and proposal costs, which you know it's not the easiest within a, a private company to get those bid and proposal costs, you know the other the other side of the coin is let's make sure we get the most highly competitive, highly qualified firms under the contract. Therefore, you know, the, when a BPA right IQ has been in place, the effort goes into it. So we have the kind of the best of the best to actually go through the procurements, and less parties, you know, you know whether you get a protest of the you know the onset of a BPA or an IEIQ. Maybe you'll you'll get those protests once to resolve. You have a great group of companies that you know they can all all successfully do the work under it. Not saying they wouldn't otherwise. So what we've done within the department, we're really trying to get down to the best of the best who can meet whatever requirement it is. And we've mentioned you know we we have innovative techniques that we we do coach our folks on. Some of this is not new, but we we um, we do coaching clinics, etc. You know, one is oral presentations. Another big one that we've done is we call them advisory down selects. JC may have heard of this. This is where it's not a, not a hey, you're not going to move forward. Is hey, we advise you based on what we've seen so far, say in phase one, don't look like you have the greatest chance of making an award at the end. So we're just letting you know now, and then you can proceed forward however you, however you see fit. That has worked really well for us. Again, just letting, being candid with industry, letting them know. So we're we're kind of on the not let everybody in. We're more on the on the side that's get the kind of the the best of the best, depending on what we're trying to buy, 
and really still have that competition in the beginning. But when we get down to it, we really do have the best companies. We, we try to, we got to look at price at the IDIQ BPA level. It's the way the rules are written today. If we didn't have to do that, maybe we wouldn't look at price initially, but we are required to do that. But once we get the task orders or the BPA and IDIQs awarded, we have a great group of, of companies. Again, to be fair to them, we don't want, you know, we don't think it's wise to have 300 companies going after every task order or um, BPA call. So that's just the way we've done things in the department. But I'm going to jump in because history has shown through a host of these multiple award IDIQ type contracts, the GWACs, that if you have 100 people, 100 vendors, 500 vendors, you don't get 300 bids on a task order. You still only get three to five bids. And I, you know, I think a lot of folks feel for you, you and your team because you're in a non-winnable situation. If you say we'll let everybody on, then people, oh, the burden of managing 600 people is, is tough on, on DHS. If you only let on 100 or 200, you're going to get 100 protests or 50 protests. So that that's going to delay it longer. And I think GSA and others are, are finding. Okay, how do we kind of overcome that? And, and one example that I've seen or one idea is these on-ramps. If you look at what GSA is doing with Oasis Plus, they're going to have constant on-ramps. And I think what they're trying to do is say, well, you didn't get on this round, but in six months you can try again. In six months you can try again. Have you thought about that as another avenue to say we're going to do on-ramps once a year, on-ramps every 18 months, whatever the time frame is, to kind of give yourself a little bit of – relief from this, the threat or the risk of protest. Yeah. And we're, we're, and just to be clear, we're okay with, we don't like protests, but we're, we're, um, we know they're, 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 there's that part of the due process. I will, I will tell you, so we've, um, we are looking at arm ramping going forward. We're looking at two things. One is arm ramping. Um, Cause I think, you know, if we put together five, six, seven year contract, industry is going to change. There'll be new vendors in the marketplace, et cetera. So we want to have, that's something we are looking at and we are putting in place with our, our bigger vehicles. But with that, on the flip side, we're also going to have off-ramping. So if, if, as you mentioned, if we have a, say we have a vehicle that has 50 companies been awarded and only five or 10 are really going for every, every opportunity, a majority of them. And there's another 30, 40 companies that aren't like we'll, we'll have those conversations with those companies, but does it make sense for them to stay on the vehicle? Maybe we start off-ramping. If a company hasn't done something in X period of time, do we look at off-ramping them off the contract as well? So have a have a on-ramp and then have an off-ramp capability as well, just to just to make sure we keep a manageable number of vendors under these vehicles that really are going hardcore, you know, going after these contracts and putting their best foot forward. And don't just have on our website, hey, we have these five GWACs, but they never go after them. So I think it's just we want to make sure we do, do this fair for industry. Again, being open and 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 um, collaborate with them, we just let them know complete transparency about what our processes are. But on ramping is definitely something we're, we're we're incorporating in our vehicles. Paul, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Paul Courtney, the Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Paul Courtney, the Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. You and I could talk about First Source 3 much more, but uh, let's move on to some of the other contracts. What are some of the other acquisition vehicles, acquisition efforts that folks uh, you want to make sure folks know about? I'll mention quickly another another vehicle. It's called our PAX vehicle. I'm going to be PAX, PAX 3. But anyway, we've had several. This is a administrative support type vehicle. It's been a service-enabled veteran and small business set aside from its inception. This guy signed out a, a, a memo. It's another one of our big vehicles that 
is used by the entire department. That's very critical for us to meet our small disadvantage goals, small disadvantage business goals, service-disabled veterans, small business goals, et cetera. These vehicles are all key for us to continue to be successful, successful in that area. I will talk about Eagle, Eagle Next Gen a little bit. So we've had a lot of conversations for, from the Eagle Next Gen side. Almost every every speaking event that I do, somebody says, "Hey, what's going on with Eagle? What are you What are you doing next?" So nothing new. We just think our Eagle Next Gen portfolio, which is a smarter way of buying IT services, and this is taking a portfolio approach, you know, coordinated effort among you know the federal government to deliver solutions, innovation, and value to DHS for IT service requirements. Get us a portfolio instead of us doing a just their own separate set aside for for these type of services. We look at it, you know, whether it's whether it's an NIH vehicle, whatever vehicle it is, and give a kind of a again a portfolio or menu of vehicles for our staff to use to meet their IT IT service requirements. So again, something that we've took a hard look at. You know, the former chief procurement officer Soraya came up with this idea. We've been using it ever since, just using a portfolio approach instead of just doing one vehicle. So those are those are two of the big vehicles I, I just mentioned and talk about. We are looking. Anytime a new GWAC gets awarded, we have a, our team, Jackie Rubino, leads our sourcing office with James Lewis. Look at, you know, does this make sense to adopt this as part of the DHS portfolio of uh, vehicles for uh, for our staff to use? So definitely a process in place for all those. And we'll continue to let keep industry abreast when we, when we adopt a new vehicle within our portfolio to let folks know. And how closely are you watching, for instance, Alliant 3, Oasis Plus from GSA, uh, CIOSP4 from NIH? Is that something that's on your radar or Jackie's radar, or is it something that you know it's happening, but when it gets awarded, that's when you'll start paying much closer attention? We're watching all those, working closely with GSA, NIH, and all these vehicles extremely closely. Industry is curious to know what DHS will adopt and maybe not adopt. So we we watch them closely in lots of conversations with, with those organizations. Again, the, the whole idea behind it is to make sure we have the vehicles in place for our staff to be successful. And it has to be, you know, the right vehicles. There are some GWACs that we don't adopt, some best-in-class vehicles we don't adopt, because it just doesn't make sense for our, for our workforce and the missions they're supporting. But, but again, every time Jack and her team working with the rest of the DHS and working with the GSAs and NIHs, make sure that makes sense for our um, for our staff to use. And I'll just assume that you've not made a decision yet on the Line 3 Oasis Plus, CIOSP4, whether you'll adopt them or not. Yes, that is, that is a correct assumption. We are watching them closely. Paul, in the last few minutes we have together, I just want to hit upon one last thing, which is the Procurement Innovation Lab. This has been around now, I think, since 2015, 2016, and it's gaining so much attention across government. I know NASA, for instance, is coming up with something called the NAIL, the NASA Acquisition Innovation Launchpad. They had to, you know, they couldn't go Innovation Lab, they had to do a Launchpad because they're NASA. I know a lot of other agencies <laughs> are really looking at the very similar, and, and you all have expanded this program. What's the latest with the pill? Where you're going with it? We are extremely proud. It was 2015 when the Procure Innovation Lab was um, was a brainchild of Soraya Correa. Started with with one, and now it's up to about half a dozen. Still a, a pretty small group. Um, you mentioned some of the other agencies. We are working closely with those other agencies. Whatever we can help them with, we're helping with. As a matter of fact, one of those agencies just hired one of our um, Procure Innovation Lab members, who's gonna who's gonna help create uh, an innovation lab at at another executive agency. So again, we're proud and we we hate to lose people, but I think it's great to help spread the innovation across the, the federal government. The workforce and the federal government procurement side, they're they're fantastic, they're innovative. So again, whatever we can do to help foster that and make it a little bit more of a formal process, we're here to help. So just a little about the PIL framework, it really centers on a learning loop of testing, 
or experimenting, sharing, institutionalizing, and retesting to really foster that learning culture across our acquisition workforce community here. And I assume other innovation labs will do the same thing. So we use this methodology as we continue to evolve and promulgate acquisition innovation from, from across DHS, the DHS community. And I mentioned the whole federal government acquisition community as well, including bringing industry into our PIL um, boot camps, which is fantastic. Talk about transparency. Can't get much more transparent to that. We have a, you know, we do these boot camps with industry sitting in the same virtual room as DHS staff, as the same room as other government acquisition staff. So, so it's great. So as we innovate, we share what we are learning broadly and we tap into hidden talents across the community. Here are some examples of pass along innovative ideas. So we recently launched a crowdsourcing platform. Seems pretty popular these days. We call it the Pill Idea Competition. So this platform empowers DHS acquisition workforce to improve procurement processes that inhibit innovation. So each idea competition is generally centered around a particular theme or topic, and it seeks to identify process challenges, stifling innovation, and really tap into the strong brain power of our DHS acquisition workforce to improve these processes. In 2022, three pill idea competitions were launched, spurred 52 solutions for reducing administrative burdens and improving work quality. Uh, they were submitted. So right now we're going through, we put together a team of experts to go through and select winning solutions and really, you know, really implementing those and just continue to share the success of, of innovation. We're also growing our innovation coach community through coach to coach opportunities. So we routinely expand these trainings and offer our coaching and consultant services to our internal and external partners. And, and this, this calendar year, the pill has taken the coach to coach model one step further. And we set up a goal of supporting the creation of at least two component level innovation labs or councils across DHS. With the support of the ICE head of contracting activity, Al Dayton and the acquisition, invitation, acquisition innovation advocate team, we've gathered innovative leaders from across the procurement offices to form the we call it the ICE PIC, Procurement Innovation Council. The CVP PIT, as opposed to PIC, Procurement Innovation Team, was already stood up a few years ago, and the PIL is hoping to support at least one more component and stand up their own innovation council or team during this, during this calendar year. Additionally, in, in 23, the PIL is seeking to expand the existing DHS competition, I'm sorry, Component Acquisition Innovation Council. This consists of innovation advocates from within each contract and activities procurement office, to include innovative advocates from each component acquisition executive or CAE and procurement attorney's office. I can't tell you how important it is to have the, the acquisition executives and also the procurement attorneys in these conversations. I'm going to thank my guest. Paul Courtney is the chief procurement officer at the Homeland Security Department. Paul, it's always great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure to talk to you as well. Thank you. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.